Welcome to the Intern Whisper. The show is all about the future of work and innovation. So today's Intern Whisper tip of the week for all of our employers and listeners. When generations are born, they have different technological breakthroughs that they're using. So many of you that are Gen, let's see, uh, we'll say Gen Y and also even baby boomers will know what copy machines are. Millennials, maybe not so much. Gen Z, they're still looking at you with that confused face, scratching their head going, what do you mean a copy machine? They don't even know how to use it. Just as a reminder, we have to, as employee mentors, be able to explain how to use different industry technology, um, what the jargon is for your industry, and keep in mind, interns really don't know those things. They will be educating you just as much with the use of your phone and social channels. So it goes both ways. So today's guest is Mac Pritchard. He is the owner of Mac's List. And we are so excited to have you here today, Mac. Well, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation, Isabella. Oh, so excited here. So, Matt, what do you want to have, odd or even today? Uh, I'll do even today. All right. So, tell us about yourself using only five words and why. The five words that I came up with were service, curiosity, integrity, organization, and creativity. All right. So, we like to always hear why those five words. So, let's start with service first. Service is an important value that I learned from my parents and uh, uh, from my Catholic education, and it is fundamental to the work that we do at MaxList. We're a certified B corporation. We're part of that global movement of business as a force for social good. And what the reason I, I created MaxList, which is a job board in the Pacific Northwest, is because I started sharing job postings with my colleagues. And I did this as a way of being of service to my network. And I've had a lot of different jobs over the years, Isabella, but the concept that runs through them all is trying to make a difference uh, and in the community where I live and work. And, and service is an important part of that. Mm, very nice. What was your second word choice? Curiosity. Uh, I think... I've always been a lifelong learner and I've always asked lots and lots of questions. I can remember in a high school job talking with some adults at a restaurant where I worked and one of them saying to me, are you writing a book? Why are you asking all these questions? And I think curiosity is a good trait for anybody to have because it helps you learn and um, also understand others and see opportunities that might not be apparent to others. Uh, so it's uh, it's been a central part of both my career and my approach to life. Did the curiosity kind of feed into the, the creativeness as, as well? It Yes, Matt, it has. And for me, creativity, I think sometimes when a listener hears that word, they think it of you know, that you have to be a painter or a musician. And I think creativity can take all kinds of forms. Um, problem solving is central to it. Uh, for me, I... I get creative by um, uh, by writing I, and podcasting, but also looking for ways to to make my business better. And I, I volunteer in many organizations and looking for ways to do our work in different ways is another form of creativity. I'm kind of curious when you say you volunteer, where is it that you do that? Because I do that with schools where I might do resume reviews or mock interviews. But I also have gone and done that with places like Career Source and um, Goodwill. My, I've volunteered in a lot of different ways over the years. My career before I started MaxList uh, was in communications, and I worked in politics, government, and nonprofits. So I was a volunteer on many political campaigns uh, over the years, and I currently serve on uh, a non the. A nonprofit board. I've been a board member a number of times, um, but you know, I was also the fellow who organized our block party in on my street for 14 years running, and uh, and the, and for many many years, I put together our family reunion. So, uh, to me, volunteering is it's about connecting with others. But um, when you give, you get so much in return, far more than 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 what you put into it. How great is that? You're still doing block parties. That's awesome. Yeah, I don't know, but I like hearing that because that takes me back to when my parents did those too. Me too. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's, it's a great way to connect with your neighbors. And when you close the street, everybody comes out. So it's, it's, it's fun. I have many good memories of, um, you know, every, I lived in a cul-de-sac and every house that I lived in had kids in it all relatively around my age. And, you know, all the parents would come out and, one parent, he would bring a projector out and we'd like, you know, project the Super Bowl or whatever movie. So we had like big community events on this one street and it was literally the whole cul-de-sac was just shut down. Kids are running around playing tag and hide and seek and, you know, parents are drinking beers and watching the Super Bowl. It's it's just really great memories. Okay. What was your next word? Uh, Integrity. And so I think it's it's so important if you say you're going to do something to do it and if you do that, you will stand out. And uh, because sad as it is to say, not everybody um, follows through on everything they're going to say. They, mm. they say they're going to do. Yeah. I know I experienced that as, the, um, as an entrepreneur, as a startup. I'm going to tell you there's just never enough hours in the day. And there are not enough people to do it. So I'll say, yes, I'll get this done. And Every intention is there, but even if I had five of me and I was working, I don't know, we'll say 10 or 12 hours a day, I think I would be able to accomplish so much more and actually you know, deliver those things that I promised. But man, it breaks my heart when I don't. I can tell you that. So integrity, I think that is absolutely needed. It's hard. And, and it's hard to say no, but as you learn to do it, and you'll be able to follow through on the things that you promised to do. And, mm-hmm. and it forces you to, to set priorities. And, and sometimes if you're a people pleaser like me, you want to, you want to try to do as much as possible and you, mm-hmm. you don't like to say no, but once you learn how to do it, uh, then you're more likely to deliver, to deliver on what you promised to do. All right. So organization, <laughs> I love that word. That is like one of my uh, biggest words that I love. Not just because of length. <laughs> well, it's it's a valuable skill to have. Somebody who's a, a good organizer and knows how to manage things, both people and projects. And, and those are two very different sets of skills. It takes time to learn, but uh, it's it's been important to me and both in my career and my personal life to be a good organizer. Again, I worked in politics for a long time, and I found that the the, the skills that I learned working on political campaigns were transferable to starting my own business, which surprised me at the time because I never saw myself as a business owner. But once I started taking those steps, the organizational skills I learned uh, in politics uh, really helped me as a business owner. Were there other skills that kind of surprised you that carried over and, and reigned true in, in your other industry as well? Well, Sometimes when you hear the word entrepreneur, you think that it's an MBA or somebody working in technology. And, um, and so when I started my first business, I run two companies. The other one is a public relations firm 15 years ago. It, I, I, I thought, well, this isn't me. But once, Matt, I started going around and doing all the things a new business owner does, finding space, uh, hiring people, uh, getting clients, raising money, setting up systems. It all felt so familiar to me. And I realized that's what you do in a campaign. Mm. You you have a candidate, that's the product. Uh, You've got to raise a lot of money uh, quickly. Usually you start with family and friends, but if you're going to be successful, you got to move beyond that. You got to find good campaign staff and you've got to develop messages and you've got a product. Again, it's the candidate and you know on election night, whether you had a sale or not. Uh, and good campaigners, um, they'll work on half a dozen, a dozen campaigns or more during the course of a career. So they'll go through that cycle again and again and again. And like uh, a tech startup, if you're, even if your candidate loses, if you run a good race, it, there's no stigma in losing. People will recognize that you did a good job. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, maybe the registration numbers were against you or there was some national trend you couldn't buck. Um, you didn't win, but if you if you ran a good campaign, doors will continue to open. So you were um, you were a, you worked in politics for a while. Is that what you've always wanted to do, or as a child did you want to work as politics? Well, as a boy in grade school, uh, being a baby boomer who was born in the late fifties, you know, I was 
uh, I just thought the, the space program was about as cool as it could get. So like every other 10-year-old, I wanted to be an astronaut. Uh, but I, I grew up in eastern Iowa, Matt, and Iowa, uh, thanks to the presidential caucuses, uh, it, you know, politics is just in the water there. Yeah. And uh, so I grew up seeing candidates from both parties come through my hometown and having an opportunity to, to meet them. And, um, and I, I remember in grade school, I think it was seventh grade, going to see It's an Old Movie with Robert Redford. It was called The Candidate. And oh, yeah. It was a bet. Yeah. And it was inspired by, uh, depending on who you talk to, either Jerry Brown's first race for office in California in the late 60s or John Tooney, who was a U.S. senator from California. But it, it takes you through a campaign uh, at a statewide level as it, it was happening in 1972. I sat through this movie twice and I thought, wow, this is great. I want to do that. And uh, uh, 20 years later, I went to grad school. Uh, at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, I took a class called To Be a Politician, and they, our first ho- assignment for the weekend was to watch that movie, and I thought, I'm in the right place. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So politics has always been something that's been important to me. But did you say your family has done this? Is this a family business also? No. Uh, my mother was a school teacher, and she She taught in the public schools. She was on the bargaining team for her local union, the American Federation of Teachers. She she was a special ed teacher. Um, Her grandfather wrote books, textbooks uh, about government. Uh, But so there was some interest in politics. The aunt who served on the city council, but usually at the local levels. Again, it goes back to that value of service. I had somebody that um, worked with me for a while And one of the things that he said, it truly resonated. He said, when something happens, if it breaks or whatever it is, uh, it fails in the workplace, he always would look and say, hey, I'll go and fix it. Because he knew it was an opportunity to set himself aside as being a leader and somebody that was a problem solver. Because most people would say, oh, no, it wasn't me. You know, I don't want to, you know, whatever. And people would avoid that. But he would just run straight into it. And I have to say, I think that's really good, solid advice. I would agree with that. And before I started my public relations company 15 years ago, I worked as a spokesperson for state agencies and elected officials. And one of the things I discovered in doing crisis communications was if your uh, many of my peers would avoid those sorts of jobs. They saw them as unpleasant and something that could hurt your career. But when things go wrong, and you've got a leader who is committed to fixing the problem and acknowledging a mistake. As a communicator, that's actually a great opportunity to show what you can do. Because, uh, again, if the leader has acknowledged the, the error and, and there's a plan to fix it, then you can talk about that plan. And the, the, it, you're not going to solve all the problems right away, but it's a great opportunity to show what you can do. And a number of times I was a spokesperson for um, projects that went very, very badly. But I took those assignments because the people who were charged with fixing the problem were willing to talk about it candidly. And I, and, and I found that uh, while the work could be hard, it ultimately was rewarding because you were solving a problem, to your point, Isabella. You weren't denying that something wasn't wrong you were talking about how you were going to fix it. Mm -hmm. And by taking those unpleasant assignments, I found a lot of doors open for me later in my career. Mm, Nice. So share with our listeners about your educational background. Where did you go to college? You know, what was your major? If you did an internship, how you, you know, what was that like? Because that's a different time. I have seen a big difference with what um, students are expecting from internships now. And they want it to be a lot more mentoring And when I say mentoring, they mean a technical mentor, somebody that's in their industry. Um, So I'm going to be very interested to hear what your internship experience was like, how you, what your first job was, and then how did you get to where you are now? Because it's a nice meandering path, I'm pretty sure. And you're going to be able to certainly share some great insight because you grew up in a different time, too. I did. Uh I went to the University of Iowa from 1970 to 
1946 to 1980. I majored in political science, and I knew that's what I wanted to study when I uh, went to Iowa City. Um, it was challenging for me. I, it was a big university then. It's twice as big now. At the time, I think there were 20,000 students, and I kind of felt lost in my junior year. And I remember seeing my advisor and talking to him about taking some kind of gap year. Uh, but I candidly, I, was, I think I just would have dropped out and might not have come back. He said, well, why don't you do an internship instead? And he, uh, the Department of Political Science at University of Iowa had a connection with a program in Washington, D.C. that arranged semester-long internships with public agencies and nonprofits and private companies. And so I signed up and I had an interest in Latin America and human rights and politics. And I took an assignment with a, a organization called the Council for Hemispheric Affairs. And I was, I spent the spring of 1979 there. And what the organization did was pitch um, the national and international media uh, stories about human rights issues in Latin America and in U.S. Latin American policy. So at the age of 21, I was pitching stories to the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a small organization. There wasn't a lot of funding. You had to do everything. But that's where I learned my basic public relations skills, how to write a news release. In those days, news conferences were very important, how to put together a, a news conference, um, uh, how to talk to reporters, uh, how to get stories in publications like the New York Times. It was a very hands-on experience. And, and you know, it sounds glamorous, but I also had to walk around town delivering news releases at the National Press Building uh, and doing a, just a lot of um, basic office work. But the experience gave me the, showed me this whole other world that existed outside of Iowa. It gave me the confidence uh, to see that I, you know, it would be hard, but I, I could thrive in that world. And it really um, set me on this course where I decided that after college, I wanted to do three things. One was to get paid to write for, uh, uh, as a communicator. Second was to work on election campaigns. And the third was to work in human rights advocacy in Latin America. And over the course of the next 10 or 15 years, I did all three things. So, you know, I would think that aside from having really good um, writing skills, but the research, how were you guys able to do the research at the time? Because, again, if there weren't computers, how were people, how was everybody getting information? There were libraries, newspapers, books, uh, a lot of time on the phone. And I, when you're in a, in those years, and again, I'm dating myself 40 plus years ago, uh, you could call people and get them on the phone and you could ask them questions if you had to research uh, a subject or a topic. And it's, it seems uh, remarkable now, but it was fairly common then. Obviously, you were going to find a lot more knowledgeable people in a place like Washington, D.C. than you might in a, in a smaller town, at least with the technical expertise. Um, I, I think uh, you know, there are smart people everywhere, but that, that's how you did it. Very good. Okay, so next question. What are you most proud of? It looks like you're, you're really um, enjoying the, the life that you had in that area of, of being in the politics uh, of just culture and life. But you did a switch. When did you switch over from being in politics to where you are? And is there something that you're more proud of in that previous work life than where you are now? Because we haven't talked about what Max List is yet, so we should probably back that one up. We Sure. Uh, Max List is a, a regional job board and career hub. It's based in Portland. We serve employers in Oregon and Washington, and we typically sell job postings of five or 600 a month. Uh, and we attract about 70,000 unique visitors to our website every month. Um, about 80% are outside of the Pacific Northwest. And the reason those folks come, it's not because they want to move here, though probably a few of them do, 
Um, but they're not coming for the job postings. They're coming for the career and hiring advice that we offer. And that's what makes us unique as a job board. We don't just put up postings. We also provide lots of content about how to look for work and how to hire smarter and better. Um, the reason we do that, Isabella, is because you can find a posting on a, a job board like mine, and that's good, and you should apply, and you should pay attention to sites like mine, but you're going to have a much uh, better advantage as a candidate if you get good at job search skills, and that means preparing for interviews, uh, writing good resumes and cover letters, and networking with others. And so we provide lots of free content about how to do that in the form of articles, um, a couple of free online courses, and a weekly podcast where I talk to different career experts. And we're, I'll also tell you, as a job board operator, if you're just starting out in your career, you probably should, shouldn't spend more than 30 or 40% of your time looking at sites like mine. The rest of your time, you should be out talking to people uh, particularly at the companies that interest you the most and, and especially to the people who have the jobs that you want or who hire for the positions that you want because referrals are so popular or so powerful rather in hiring and, 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 and the people who understand that have an advantage over their competitors. Um, again, we provide lots of content for employers too because so many of our uh, customers, the people who post jobs on our site are small or medium-sized companies and hiring is not a frequent event and it's usually put in charge of somebody whose job is something else entirely they're not trained in how to write a job posting or manage a, a search process or how best to communicate with candidates so we provide lots of content and instruction about how to do that as well um, so how did a guy who was interested in politics in latin america end up doing this right it, yeah uh, as i mentioned my career has been in communications um, after uh, working in with human rights groups for about eight years in Washington, D.C. And, and Boston. I made the switch to local and state politics in Massachusetts. Um, I lived there for about nine years. And I, uh, I did that because I didn't want to leave the city. If I wanted to continue working in Latin America, I needed to go overseas or move to D.C. or, or New York. And I didn't want to do that. So I took my skills in communications and organizing and they uh, made the switch to becoming a, a communications director for uh, first a big highway project, uh, Boston's Big Dig. I was the first PIO, public information officer there. And then I, I worked for the state office for refugees and immigrants. And then I was mm. about 10 years into my career and I uh, wanted to get a, a master's degree and, and I wanted to get formal training in the things that I was doing every day. And so I was fortunate to get into Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. And when I finished the master's in public administration program there, my wife and I wanted to relocate. So we came to Oregon and I worked in uh, government and politics here first at Portland City Hall as a communications director for a mayoral candidate. And then I went to the state capitol and I was a spokesperson for several state agencies as well as a speechwriter to a governor. Um, and uh, then after about uh, seven years in, in government, I was hired to be communications director for a national nonprofit based in Portland. I did that for seven years and our funder came to me and said, we're gonna phase out jobs like yours across the country, but we wanna continue working with you. Would uh, we'd like to hire you and you should st set up your own company. And so I did that 15 years ago. But along the way, this all sounds kind of glamorous and exotic, but I had two really long periods of unemployment, once in my 20s and once in my 30s. And those experiences taught me the importance of uh, backup plans. <laughs> yeah, backup plans and staying in touch with your network. And so I started sharing job postings. Um, nobody complained about getting a job posting and it was a way of being ser of service to others. Uh, and that eventually became a business uh, about 10 years ago. And now it employs five people and uh, it's, uh, it's a six figure operation. That's cool. I really admire um, your commitment to making a difference. It seems like everything that you did through all of your um, 
internships to um, working with Latin America. It just was that you wanted to make a difference. And now it seems like you're transitioning and trying to make a difference in a different area. And could you kind of speak on that a little bit? Yeah, that is a a constant that runs through my career, Matt. Thanks for picking up on that. And I have also had my share of paycheck jobs along the way. I've worked as an office temp. And there was a time when my pride got the better of me when I was out of work. And I said, well, I'm not going to volunteer. You know, I'm just going to focus on my job search and cash my unemployment check. And that was a, for me, uh, that was a bad decision because I was at home stewing in my own juices and uh, not getting out and seeing people. Um, so I, I say that because it's, a, I think I'm a big fan of paycheck jobs. If you got a choice between sitting at home and doing temp work, I think it's always the better option to get out there and do that work and make a living, even if you're earning less than you were in your um, profession, because there's a dignity that comes with work. And with service to others, that's an important value for me. But I I also want to stress that you don't have to work for a nonprofit for your job to have meaning. I think uh, what the important thing is to find work that engages you and satisfies you. And uh, whether you're working for a private company uh, or a nonprofit, the organization exists because it's solving a problem. It's providing a service and, uh, and, and that's a good thing. Mm. And if you're part of a successful team, uh, no matter what your occupation, uh, you are going to be making a difference and that's going to give you and your colleagues satisfaction that is going to be very rewarding and uh, make you excited about going to work every day. So I'm going to add on to um, the value that you're bringing with your job board, but it's also the additional like resume review or resume tips or whatever. I was a speaker at an event here in Orlando and I was talking about skills-based resumes and how they look different from the traditional resumes where it's, here's a list of the things that I did in my job. There's always a skill, a cognitive skill. That's what's coming on inside of your brain for our listeners. And that's what helps produce some type of an output. It could be a spreadsheet. It could be a report. It could be a video. But you have to have some real skills there. And so now the movement, just so our listeners know, is to have those skills like problem solving and critical thinking and research and time management and the the values that you also expressed. Those are something that are truly um, more valuable now and is the way that people are beginning to differentiate themselves because the job descriptions should be focused on real skills. Because if I went from um, being in the video industry and I decide I want to go into the medical industry, they're very different, but there are those cognitive skills, problem solving, critical thinking, time management, organization, like you mentioned also. Those are all transferable to anything that you do. And I think that's really where we become um, those people that can help others see, let's look at what it is that you're bringing to the table. Because hands down, a single mom, a student that works you know, a job and goes to school full time, I mean, obviously, they're really good at managing time and solving problems. So those would be at the top of my list of people to hire. It's just a commentary, really, hey, but we- feel free to weigh in. Um- well, you're making an important point because I certainly meet people all the time who are in one occupation or sector and they want to switch to another and they've got the skills to do it. What they struggle with is showing an employer that those skills are transferable or they're uncertain about how to, to make that case. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad you brought this up. And I, I think one of the most effective ways you can do that is to do some homework and find somebody who has made the switch that you want to make and ask them how they did it, what objections did they have to overcome to do it, and how did they um, overcome those, those, those challenges. Uh, learn from somebody who's already done what you want to do. And, you know, again, it's, it's in some ways, it's like, like the kind of research problems I was dealing with 40 years ago where it's trying to find people via the phone who – could answer a certain question. The Intern Whisperer is brought to you by Cat5 Studios who help you create games and videos for your training and marketing needs that are out of this world. 
Visit Cat5 Studios for more information to learn how Cat5 Studios can help your business. Thank you, Cat5 Studios. It's the same thing today. You're just doing it by email or, or chat. Or polls. <laughs> but there's like somebody who solved polls. the problem. Yeah. Yeah. There was something else that you had mentioned is like, you know, you had just just said it too, is like we used to go and pick up the phone and call people. And so now with everything being more digital and it's online, people can go. One of the things that I've encouraged students to do is when you're looking for a job, you don't start at the last semester when you're going to do that. You start when you first get into school and you begin to build up a, a network of people that you know and even if you're not on any social channels, you should at least have presence on LinkedIn because that is the business social channel. And what I encourage them to do is post your resume. Just post it online and just say, hey, I'm looking for a job. I'm looking for feedback from anybody in HR or anybody that's a hiring manager. And you'll get all types of opinions. People will weigh in with, oh, you should do it in this format or this font or whatever. The point is, it's water on a duck's back. You know, you can listen to whatever you want to. Pay attention if they're mentioning anything that's skills. That would be obviously important. I feel like this world of having internships should be more specific so that it is really setting somebody up for success. You can also post in groups, LinkedIn groups, and I've encouraged them, go talk with people. You know, reach out on LinkedIn and connect with five people a day the hiring manager or the HR person, and then people that are like your peers, entry level. If you choose that, you'll have a nice, well-rounded assortment of people that can begin to connect with you. But even in the LinkedIn groups, like share a question and say, hey, what does anybody think about this? Why do you think you have to have three years of experience instead of uh, two? You know, just as a poll and a question. What are your thoughts about all of that? Well, I like the point you're making that you shouldn't wait until the last semester before mm. graduation to start your job search. College is a time for exploring different ideas and, and, and different opportunities. And, uh, and I think everybody has a, an idea of what interests them when they start school and they in their freshman year, they should act on, on those interests and join clubs, um, uh, talk to people who are, are doing the work that interests them. Think about the concerns they have about breaking into that field and, and get advice. Uh, you don't, I think internships are really important. Mm -hmm. These days, most students who, uh, if, if they can swing it, will have at least two, sometimes three. Um, but even if you can't afford to do academically sponsored internships, summer jobs are invaluable too for both building a, a, a work record and getting practical experience in the workplace. Uh, but, but again, don't, uh, another challenge I, I see students wrestle with is they think they have to have the perfect job after graduation and recognize that you're gonna be in the workplace for 40 plus years. Uh, and you need to know what your ideal job would be and sometimes you have to figure out the two or three jobs that you're going to have to get, uh, take rather to, to get to that position and recognize it's, it's a process. So uh, you know, don't I, wait and, and don't, don't expect perfection right away. I'm going to add to that because sometimes people forget that, oh, they've got a job at Publix or McDonald's or Taco Bell. And I sit here and go, but there's still a skill there. You're either there to, you know, be able to negotiate a problem if it's within another, you know, person within the company. You know, somebody doesn't want to work the line and do this. Customer service is always huge. So communication, customer service, being able to solve problems, being able to be aware of time management. If they can count change without the computer, that's going to be amazing because that's going to be not relying on technology, but, you know, their brain power. So I feel like um, there's ways that they can really recraft that resume so that it truly speaks to the skills, not the tasks that they did in the job. That would be of huge value. But let's switch it up and talk to about talk about the mid to senior level people because I think mid to senior level they get bored they want to go to a new industry so they go and they switch gears again I'm going to go from 
video over here to medical? Like, how would you suggest that they do that? Do you have any tips? I think that it's important to have clarity about what it is you want to do next. Mm -hmm. And I see many people wrestle with that, uh, many candidates, and because they're uncertain, they get stuck or they never get started. And if, and I think one of the best ways to, to get that clarity um, is to find, again, I've, I've made this point before, but find somebody who has the job that interests you and talk to them about it. There's also, I think, great value in, in working with coaches and you can hire career coaches to help you take you through a process to uh, get clear about your goals for your next, next job. Uh, you can also work with often um, the career services office at your university if you're a college graduate or every state has an employment department that has a, a, a great services too that are free but I think getting that clarity is 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 really important um, and then if you haven't um, if the job searches you've done in the past have relied just on uh, lucky referrals or finding positions on job boards, I, I would encourage you to step back and, and invest some time in improving your your job search skills, particularly getting good at, at informational interviews and, and networking because so, referrals are so important in both uncovering jobs that never get advertised and in getting offers once you're a finalist for a position. Mm-hmm. And the people who are good at at reaching out to others and having structured informational interviews with them that are focused on business results are going to have a great advantage over their competitors. Mm -hmm. And I think both of you made really um, interesting points that kind of feed into one another. Whereas um, Mac earlier, you mentioned how, you know, when you're getting out of, out of school, you're, you're looking for this like perfect job, but I think the myth of there being a perfect job ever is just kind of something that runs true for all age groups. Right. I don't think there's always going to be a point where you want to reinvent yourself and go a different direction. So it doesn't matter if you're, you know, 19 straight out of school looking for that perfect job, you might be 40 and you're looking for that perfect job still. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think there's that myth where it doesn't exist. And then also, um, because you don't have what your ideal perfect job is, it doesn't mean that you are losing or that you're um, less than in any way, right? Because now you're learning things that you don't want to do. And you'll never lose that human capital that you gain from any experience. Every experience is a learning experience and Mm -hmm. that can never be taken away from you. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up, Matt, because most of us will have perhaps a 10 or a dozen jobs in the course of 40 years in the workplace. And many of us will change careers three or five times. And, and so we've got to get good at reinvention and we've got to learn the skills that are going to help us do that uh, because it's coming. And what you don't want to see happen is getting stuck in a place where you're unhappy and, and stuck in large part because you don't know how to move on. Eventually, your unhappiness will catch up. You'll be miserable, and uh, and you might be asked to leave uh, without being given a choice. So mm-hmm. you need to take charge of your career. Uh, you can't you can't wait to be picked. Uh, you you got to go out and 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 look for your opportunities and know what you want and be clear about what you offer. Be really good at showing. Uh, employers that the difference you can make let's do some fun questions okay what is the best meal that you can whip up and amaze your friends and family it can also be a dessert i'll throw that one in there in case it's not a meal i'm really good with the takeout menu and (laughs) (laughs) all right yeah i've got a number of wonderful restaurants on speed dial and it's ironic because to your point earlier about service jobs uh isabella when I was in high school and college, I worked as a cook. Uh, so I was a, uh, I worked at a hotel restaurant in high school. I was a good short order cook. And then later um, I was at a surf and turf place, but it was a very, you know, it was, it was production cooking. It was mm-hmm. uh, the line. Not, yeah. I was, uh, I was on the line. I was the guy who ran the wheel where all the orders were. And my job was to keep the waiters 
on one side and the cooks on the other happy and coordinate everything. It was a great uh, uh, preparation for politics and crisis communications. Oh, so yeah. you did expo work. Okay. It sounds yeah. like Gordon Ramsay. <laughs> Wait, you donkey. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Matt, you get to ask the fun question, the last question here for the first half of the show. Awesome. Do you think life exists on other planets? I do. Yeah, I Yes, we it's all such do. a big universe that <laughs> it has to be uh, it has to be so and uh I I someday will learn that. Hmm. Yeah. So my thing and Matt knows he's heard me say this ad nauseum. So men in black when you open the locker and they all say hail hail the king, you know. So I sit here and I think yes, they are totally everywhere from I can, I'll equate it to something I haven't said before. I think about ants. I sit here and go, we look like giants to ants. And so what if the ants were really the aliens or, ooh, the cockroaches, just like in Men in Black? So they could all be. Who knows? They've been around forever. Yeah, it's a big universe. All right. Well, we're going to take a few minutes to acknowledge our sponsor. And so we will be back in a minute. Five, four, three, two. The Intern Whisperer is part of Employer's... Oh, I just... I no, you don't reading. say that. You just say back to our show. Oh, well, I don't have a... Oh, yeah. And back to our show. <laughs> the part... You're supposed <laughs> you to say back to our it? show. This part is all about... I don't have it here. It's not written up. Uh, did you scroll down the page? Okay, yeah. just for the, the video team, this is not sure in there. For cutting all that. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Does well, life exist? The Intern Whisperer is for... Oh, okay. There we go. Okay. I don't know what I was thinking. You want to try Yeah, I was looking at the ad read. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Okay, now, now, Nick or Alex, this is where you pick it up. Okay, go ahead. Back to our show. This part of the show is about the future of jobs and industries in 2030. All right. So, Mac, what do you predict the future of the industry and jobs will look like in 2030? How much automation, robots? Pick whatever you want. Remote work is here to stay. Oh, yes. And... And that might seem obvious today when you and I are talking about it uh, with with Matt, but two years ago, three years ago, before the COVID-19 pandemic, there was a lot of debate and there were lots of very serious people who could talk at length about why remote work wasn't going to happen. And wouldn't work. Yeah, wouldn't work. And the pandemic has shown us otherwise. Now we've got to sort it out and figure out how it's going to work. And I think organizations that have invested in real estate and leases have a lot of, a lot of tough decisions ahead of them in the next five to 10 years. And it's not just about property. It's also about management and hiring and cybersecurity, cybersecurity, but also talent. Now you've got organizations that can be in one city and hire people from across the country. They're not just looking at the local labor pool anymore. Mm -hmm. I think that this is what the next problem is going to be is because, you know, as people, we are built for relationships and we are used to being able to interact face to face and be in, be in the same room. I think that the bigger problem is going to be um, how do you get people to not be so isolated and begin to communicate more because yes, you know, face-to-face is always the best. We, we know that. Studies have de- definitely demonstrated that. This is also good, but then there's people that want to keep their cameras off, whatever. And then you have phone calls because at least the more of your senses you're using, obviously the better the relationship is. People can pick up on social cues and voice and all of those variables. But then if you're left to your own devices and you're looking at either email and I'll still take email over text because texts are usually very, very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Casual with how they write. And I detest a texting conversation that is more than three times. Sit here and just pick up the phone. It's going to be so much faster. Anyway, what are your thoughts about all of that? Because I think the more senses that are used, the more relational we become when we do not have uh, the use of senses and we're all working remotely. Lord help us. You know, it, it becomes more of an introverted and, and an awkward experience, it seems. It's clear that we'll have to learn new habits and new ways of, of working with each other. And 
the managers and employers are going to have to learn these skills as well. And organizations are going to have to create new processes. Um, how it's all going to play out, Isabella, I don't know. But I will say your point about the importance of human relationships is, is I think, central to this. And uh, because I see this in hiring, but I think it's true of life in general. People want to work with people they know, like, and trust, mm -hmm. and they want to find those people to join their team, and they they want to spend their days with people like that. Mm -hmm. So I do think it is possible to build good, effective working relationships on virtual teams, and I think for companies that have been uh, had work-at-home Fridays or have been working with remote teams on a partial basis before the pandemic. They've, they've got an advantage over their competitors, uh, but we'll, I think the, we'll all figure it out in the end. Mm. What about robots? I know that, well, our second question was the impact of COVID on the business, but I, we've been weaving that one through the whole conversations that we've had here. But what about robots, AI? Where do you think that all of that will fit in there? Well, I think automation <laughs> has always been important in economic growth and in, and in any business. And I think the pandemic accelerated uh, those processes because there was this period, and it continues for many employers, where revenues plunged and you had to find savings. And so one of the most effective ways to do that is to look for ways to automate business processes. I'm an optimist. I, automation's been happening uh, forever, and we keep finding, creating new kinds of jobs, and we uh, keep finding new ways to employ people. Um, what worries me is that we've created all this increase in productivity, and we haven't done as good a job uh, as we could in sharing the rewards of that productivity. I, I see... Um, Wage growth, well, for professionals, it's gone up a little bit in the last 40 years. But since the 1970s, uh, wage growth for people doing manual occupations has gone way down. And at the same time, the productivity has gone way up, in part because of automation. I think we need to find uh, ways to fix that. So I'm going to jump over here. I'm going to ask Matt what he thinks, too. So when Matt was onboarded, I had documents that he had to complete and he, he either had to manually print them out or we, you know, could write on it as a Google Doc, but, you know, that, that wasn't working well. So obviously having anything that you can automate, like those tedious, mundane tasks of paperwork, um, getting away from there and making it a faster process. What do you think, Matt? Um, I think it's a, there's a healthy blend of it, right? I mean, it's one of those things where when it works, it, it works really well and it's really helpful. But when it doesn't work, it's kind of the end of everything, right? It's like not knowing how to count change without the calculator. It's, 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 there's, a, there's a healthy blend of knowing um, what you need to do and how to do it without automation. So that way, if automation does fail you, then you are able to still complete your tasks. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yep. How about you, Mac? I think when... Companies are putting out processes like that. It, it can be both good for the customer and, and the employer. But I also, also think you always have to have uh, a way for a customer to reach a real human being. And we, at my job board, I mean, we take great pride in the fact that you can actually, if you're so inclined, call a number and Sue will answer and she'll work with you to fix your problem. Mm -hmm. And I think companies that do that uh, have an advantage, uh, you know, to, to Matt's point, I think there is this um, trend of what sometimes is called shadow work. You know, when you, when we want to order a product or um, get a service, we've got to fill out these forms that in the past would have been completed by employees of the business that were uh, uh, purchasing a service or a product from. And now we're doing that work. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and that's another, that's not automation so much as, you know, uh, almost outsourcing the work to the customer itself, uh, mm -hmm. uh, himself. Uh, 
but there's a productivity gain that, that comes from that. And that goes back to my uh, other point. Well, we're seeing big gains in productivity, both because of these business processes and automation, but we're not seeing those those productivity gains translate into higher wages for many people mm. and higher salaries. Um, and I don't think that's an automation problem. I think that's a problem that requires, um, you know, other changes. Uh, but that's one of the uh, one of the unintended consequences of automation is not increased productivity. That's a, a goal of it. But we're seeing income inequality mm -hmm. result because of it. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's like a technology moving faster than like legislative or wh where do you think that comes from? I think it, it's a policy question, Matt. And, um, you know, if you're a business owner and you adopt new business processes that increase productivity, you've got a choice to make about how you want to distribute those rewards. Are you going to invest in your uh, workers and and uh, take the profits that result from uh, gains in productivity and put them into the higher salaries? Are you going to invest in growing the company? Um, uh, are you going to keep the money? Uh, you, those are are, are are choices every business owner makes. And I think as a society, uh, you know, there's a bigger question here about that. And but again, ultimately, it's a policy question. Hmm. So out of that whole conversation, what um, is really interesting to me is the fact that we still have classes of people, those that may have basic you know, skills, um, like they don't teach cursive writing anymore. And so how are people supposed to sign something? Well, what came out of that issue was, oh, we need to have digital signatures. So you pick which one you want it to be as your signature. And then there's people that may not know how to actually write because they speak multiple languages. So, you know, they type something or the way that it's done in their country, for example, in Latin countries, they tend to put their uh, picture as well as their birth date and their marital status. Go, no, 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 we don't do that here in this country. So there's some cultural things that are happening when you, you know, outsource the ability to uh, complete information on a form. Um, what would be interesting, and I don't know, I have a feeling this is going to be what will happen, is to have one basic master registration form, and then as you, which is what machine learning is doing, is you start typing your name, it pops in there, right? And it begins to populate all the way across. Like, think about your life resume, and if you could upload that into a... Um, all registration forms that you would ever have to complete in your whole life, whether it's a Pell Grant or you're asking for Social Security, you know, whatever it is, that spectrum, right? There's this one registration form and your whole life gets uploaded in there. Like, that is terrifying to me because I'm sitting here thinking, that's a lot of data about my life that's being put up there. It is certainly convenient. I don't have to complete job applications a million times because, you know, I have this one one registration page that is my life. But that wasn't on anything that I found, but it was just through this conversation that we've had that I was thinking of that, and I went, what if it was like that way? That would be, I don't know, scary. What do you guys think? Mac? Well, I... I think all the information you just described is probably out there about each of oh, us yeah. on the internet already. <laughs> it's probably in our phone, honestly. This is no. not a phone. This is a little computer. It's everything. Yeah. Now, uh, bringing it back to job search, in the end, you've got to have a good resume, but it's the personal connections that will matter, and it's your understanding of the, the special challenges of that company and that hiring manager that will distinguish you from the other applicants. Mm -hmm. So I don't think hiring managers are looking for as much information as possible about a candidate. I think they want to know how an applicant is going to help them solve their problems and mm -hmm. the, the ones that are keeping them up at night. And that means that you got to, um, you got to, you got to niche down and reason and have that specialized knowledge, not, uh, um, not a lot, a lot, a lot of general knowledge. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah it does. absolutely. 
Um, I wanted to ask what your best mentoring advice was uh, that you would like to share with our listeners. Don't wait to be picked. Mm. When I talk to <laughs> people about their careers, they, they know what they want. Sometimes it's really hard for them to say it out loud. Uh, and, but I encourage you to do that. Tell a friend, a partner, um, what it is you want to do next. And then find somebody who's done it, talk to them about how they did it and start following that advice, but don't wait for a job. If, if you know you want to work at Nike, uh, don't wait for a job to pop up on the Nike website. Start talking to people at Nike about the job you want. Find the people who have that job and start building relationships inside the company. Uh, but, and, and if you do see the job pop up on the website, yes, apply, but don't wait for your resume to be plucked out of the pile. Start building connections with people who are involved in that hiring process and inside that organization. Because I would challenge every listener, think about the most satisfying jobs you've had. They probably come through an internship or referral, some personal connection. And so our challenge when we're looking for something to do next, whether it's a job or um, an opportunity uh, outside of our professional life, uh, is, is to build those same connections and create those same referrals, create those same opportunities, and don't wait for them to be advertised or put in front of us and hope that when we raise our hand, someone will say, uh, yeah, you, I'm picking you. Mm. Yes, that's really great advice. And, and this might get cut. But just from my personal experience, um, a lot of the job, I've worked a lot of odd jobs, customer service jobs, restaurant jobs, things like that. And a lot of them have came from um, my connections with people, but then also waiting around to be picked. Um, I would be at a job and I would be unhappy. And then I would have a friend who left the job, you know, six months ago, hit me up and go, hey, you're a really good worker. You should come work for us over at this other restaurant. So it was a combination of my connections with people, but then also me not going and trying to make the jobs that I really wanted to be. So instead, I just kept getting stuck in, you know, Groundhog Day in the same job mm -hmm. because the people knew I was good at that, but they would just keep referring me to other jobs that are similar like that. And I would only leave when I had another opportunity present itself instead of seeking that opportunity and then leaving. Very insightful. All right. Well, we here we are um, getting at the end of the show. So Mac, how can our listeners find you? What's your website, your social channels, um, LinkedIn? How do you want them to connect with you? Please connect with me on LinkedIn and mention that you heard me on the show, so I know how you found me. Uh, and again, my name is Mac Pritchard. And also visit our website, maxlist.org. Well, you'll find lots of information there about how to look for work and how to hire smarter. Uh, and we also have a weekly podcast. Every week I talk to a different career expert about the nuts and bolts of job hunting. Just go to maxlist.org slash podcasts, or you can find the show anywhere you download podcasts. It's called Find Your Dream Job. Ooh, that's a really easy name to remember. Very good. Well, I want to say thank you to our sponsor, Cat5 Studios. Thank you to our production team, Becca Coffey, associate producer intern, video and audio editing interns, Nick Morales and Alex Teal. Music by Dave Francis, Sophie Lloyd, Charles Fleming, and Elijah Sutton. Sound effects by Matt Miller, our own Matt Miller. And this is his last show. So he is finishing strong with you, Mac, just so you know. Miguel Sintra and Dave Francis. And employers, visit our Employers for Change website at e4c.tech. That's e, the number four, c.tech to learn how you can get stellar results with your intern program that benefits your employees and in interns and be recognized as an employer for change. Thank you so much, Mac. This has been delightful, and I am very, very grateful for you being a guest on the show today. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed my conversation with you and with Matt. Very nice. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure meeting you. All right, Mac, I'm going to miss you so much, buddy. going to miss you, too. It was such a blast. Awesome. All right. Sound, we're saying good night to all of our listeners. 